0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 19, starting in verses verse 41. In our passage today, we'll see a fierce argument between the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah. David, he had recently suppressed the rebellion of Absalom but now a quarrel is going to lead to another rebellion. And this one is going to be led by a man named Sheba. And Sheba has no, no relationship to the queen of Sheba. So this is just a, a guy named Sheba. So not only will we see another rebellion, but we'll also see another of Joab's murders, and we will see another tragedy for David's concubines. So please re- read with me. Second Samuel 19, starting verse 41, and we'll go through chapter 20. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel." Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, But he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bickri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bickri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth-Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth-Makkah. So they cast up a mound against the city and stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, "'has lifted up his hand against King David. "'Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city.' "'And the woman said to Joab, "'Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall.' "'Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. "'And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, "'and threw it out to Joab. "'So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, "'every man to his home. "'And Joab returned to the king.' to Jerusalem, to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Beniah the son of Jeho- Jehoiada was in command of all the Cherethites and Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Sheba was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today and we thank you for your word here. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us our daily bread, that you would give us your word, that truly you would give us yourself, for we must feast upon you in faith. So we ask, Lord, that... Uh, that we would be encouraged here to be eager to maintain unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask also, Lord, that we would see the gospel here and that we would think much on our inheritance that we have in the son of Jesse. So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, here in uh, southeastern Minnesota, uh, we don't ever have earthquakes. I've lived in Minnesota my whole life. I've never experienced an earthquake here in Minnesota. And, and, uh, and, and in fact, really since, uh, ni- since 1860, there have only been recorded 20 earthquakes here in Minnesota. And they all have just been small to moderate in size, and none have ever been in southeastern Minnesota. So we don't have much uh, many earthquakes here, so we don't really know much about them or have much experience with them. But sometimes after an earthquake, there is an aftershock. Aftershocks are earthquakes of lesser intensity that follow the first and largest earthquake. An earthquake causes a measure of instability with new stressors on rocks deep underground. That then results in other smaller earthquakes until everything is settled and at rest. So aftershocks, are they're a result from the instability caused by the initial earthquake. We also have aftershocks in life, don't we? We have these events in life that happen, these problems that, that hit, and shortly after one problem hits, another problem arises. We often will get hit back to back with problems with little to no rest in between. These past few chapters of Second Samuel have been like that for David. He wanted to get his kingdom stabilized after the earthquake of Absalom's rebellion, and now all the tribes are quarreling over him, and an aftershock hits. Another rebellion rises up as a result from the instability of the first. This past week, my family and I, we went out to South Dakota for Presbytery, and we visited a gold mine when we were out there. At one point, the tour guide turned off all the lights, and it was just pitch black. Our passage for days is it's kind of like a mine. It's dark, but there is gold there for us. There are treasures here that far surpass anything that the world values. So here are three main nuggets, if if you will, uh, that we will get from this passage. The first, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Second. We are to be sure that our sin will find us out. And third, we are to believe the gospel, that we do have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. So the unity of the church, the condemnation of sin, and the inheritance we have in the gospel. Those will be the three main things that we focus on. So first, let's look at 2 Samuel 19, starting in verse 41. Let's look. Uh, closely at the fight that happens here, this quarrel. Let's see how, how it starts, how it continues and escalates, and then let's see how it leads to the belief in a lie, which then causes this fickle division and rebellion. And I think as we study this fight, I think it'll help us understand the fights and the quarrels that we ourselves get into. So verse 41, then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all, the men, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The men of Israel consisted of the ten northern tribes, and the men of Judah consisted of the two southern tribes, and David was of the tribe of Judah. This whole quarrel between the, 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 the tribes here was over this situation. Judah had brought David and his household over the Jordan. They had brought him back. They were bringing him back to Jerusalem. And there was honor in doing that. And, and so that didn't go over well with the men of Israel because they wanted the honor of bringing back David to Jerusalem. So they confronted the king about this. But as you can see, even though the men of Israel spoke to the king directly, the men of Judah just jump right in and respond to them instead of letting David respond himself. They immediately respond defensively. They claim that uh, they they have a special duty and, and a right with David because he is their close relative. They also feel disrespected because they feel like they're being accused of, of taking advantage of David. That maybe they're, they're eating his royal food, and, and maybe he's giving them gifts for what they are doing. Now, the men of Israel, they hadn't even brought up that charge against them. Judah had simply just jumped to conclusions. Now, how often does that happen in our fights with one another? We, 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 we despond, respond defensively. We defend our reputation and respect. And we jump to a few conclusions along the way. All these responses continued the fight. Israel didn't take kindly to Judah's defensive response, and and the fight was on over who had the honor of being more closely tied to the king. In verse 43, Israel continues the fight by reminding Judah that they had ten shares in the king, eight more than Judah. They had eight tribes more than Judah did and thus they had more people, so they had a greater share in the king. Then they also brought up the fact that they were actually the first to have the idea of bringing David over the Jordan. So to summarize this argument that's going back and forth. Judah believed that they had a right to David, because they were related to him. And Israel believed they had more right to David because they had more people. And they had the idea first to bring Israel to bring David back. So so they were, uh, they were more faithful to him. They loved him more. These arguments are steeped in pride. Specifically, it's the pride of entitlement to honor and respect. Israel didn't feel that they got the recognition they deserved, and in their complaint, they were not careful in their words. They hastily used words like like you can see here. They they say, why have the men of Judah stolen you away? Stolen. That word implies ill motives on Judah's behalf. Now Judah, instead of responding with, with humility and grace, Forgiveness and patience, trying to understand uh, their, their brothers. Instead, they snapped back and reminded Israel of the obvious, that, that they are related to David. Everyone knew that. And therefore, they're more deserving, more entitled to, the, to these privileges, rights, and honors. That, too, was pride. Israel and Judah just go back and forth attacking their brothers, trying to get the power and recognition that they desire. So beware, brothers and sisters, of entitlement, of of passions for honor and respect and, and privileges. Beware of fighting for that close proximity to the people that are important in your life. These things lead to infighting. Beware of hasty words. Beware of reaching hasty conclusions or of being slow to give your brother or sister or your husband or your wife, the benefit of the doubt. Those things continue arguments. As the quarrel rages on, we see in verse 1 of chapter 20 that all of a sudden the blow of a trumpet pierces the men's shouts. A man named Sheba has heard the fighting over David and he uh, calls for the complete opposite. He calls for the complete abandonment of David. He says in the middle of verse 1, and this is perhaps the most important verse for us to focus on today, he says, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. This is a hopeless lie. Israel does have an inheritance in David. Pride leads to fighting, and fighting leads to people saying and believing lies. Sheba was a worthless man who took advantage of both the kingdom's instability and also the heat of the fight. He took advantage of it to to preach his hopeless, divisive lie and to draw people to follow himself. Sometimes when conflict strikes a church, it results in some people leaving it and and just believing a hopeless lie that they should never join another church again because no churches or pastors can be trusted. Churches are just ticking time bombs. And so going it alone in the Christian life is safer. That is a lie, but in the moment, in the pain of infighting, that can be a very believable lie. In verse 2, we see that Sheba was successful in drawing the men of Israel away from David and following after him. How fickle was this division? I mean, just look, Israel, Israel had just been fighting over David. They, like That they have more shares in David. They have more of a right to him. And now, just because of what one guy says, they've left him completely. That happened to Jesus too, didn't it? One day, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! And then a few days later, the crowds were shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Beware the fickle nature of the masses. A great number of people can change their minds very quickly when led by influential leaders. Few people, few people change their minds on solid truth. Many changed their minds because of how loud and confident and numerous the voices are. So here we see another rebellion. Brothers have been divided. But this is not how we are to live in light of the gospel, is it? Ephesians 4.3 calls us to be united to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are to be Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To be eager for unity. Israel and Judah were not eager for peace. They were not watchful for the signs of division. They were not ready to snuff out the fire fires caused by the tongue that can devour whole forests. They were not eager to protect unity with the armor of humility, grace, forgiveness, patience, and a quickness to overlook an offense. So brothers and sisters, let's be eager to maintain our unity by being watchful over our hearts and and over our tongues. Watch for pride, for a sense of deserving respect, recognition, special access to important people in our lives. Let's watch for defensiveness even if you didn't start the fight, a defensive response will keep the fight going. Defensiveness is lacks love at the core of it. When you think about defensiveness, it lacks love. It's all about self-love, preserving self-righteousness, and and there's 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 a fear mixed in there too. Instead, brothers and sisters, let's be let's be ready to count others' more worthy of honor than ourselves. Let's be like Christ and and be ready to serve and not just be around to be served. So brothers and sisters, in the spirit of being eager to maintain our unity, let's walk humbly with one another in love. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Sheba draws all the men of Israel away. But Judah holds fast to their king and, and they end up bringing him to Jerusalem. In the rest of this chapter, we see a very important principle played out. It's a truth that comes from Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. It comes from the mouth of Moses. He warns the people there, the people of Gad and Reuben. He says, Be sure your sin will find you out be sure your sin will find you out. What Moses means by this is that you don't get away with sin. What you have done eventually comes to light. Your sin eventually accuses you. Punishment eventually comes. Nothing goes unseen before the eyes of God. So let's not be arrogant about about our secret sins that, that we think that, oh, it'll never be known, what's, what's done, that really won't hurt anybody. It's just in the past. Joab and Sheba are prime examples of this. Sheba's sin found him out quickly, and Joab's sin found him out years later, as we will see. Justice will come soon for Sheba, and justice will come later for Joab. We'll first look at what happens to these two men, and then we'll come back to verse 3 to consider just this confusing tragedy with the concubines. Let's start with Joab in verses 4 through 13. Now Joab, he had lost his position as commander of the king's army to uh, Amasa, his cousin so as David sought to suppress Sheba's rebellion, he turned to uh, Amasa. He called Amasa to gather the men of Israel uh, within three days to go quickly pursue Sheba. But as we see in verse 5, Amasa, for whatever reason, failed to accomplish this. So David turned instead to Abishai, Joab's brother, to take his army and pursue Sheba, saying, Now Sheba, the son of Bikri, will do us more harm than Absalom. So David was fearing the worst. He knew that his army must act quickly. So Abishai, Joab, the Cherethites, Pelethites, and all the mighty men set out from Jerusalem, and they eventually stopped in Gibeon. Amasa, the commander whose job was probably on the line at this point, he met up with them in Gibeon, and it cost him his life. In verse 8, As Joab goes toward Amasa, Joab's sword, which was fastened on his left side, it it falls to the ground. Joab then greets Amasa, saying, Is it well with you, my brother? And as he goes to greet him with a kiss, he takes his sword with his left hand and stabs him with one deadly blow. Now, how he goes about this is is a little confusing. There's some details that we don't get in the text here. But I believe there's reason to to think that everything Joab did here was strategic and intentional. The sword falling out, if you think about it, that, that enabled him to take hold of his sword without suspicion. Well, he's just putting it back in his sheath. Greeting Amasa with a kiss enabled him to get within stabbing distance of Amasa without suspicion. Well, he's just coming in to greet The move works to perfection and he strikes quickly, unexpectedly and decisively. It was done so smoothly it really makes you think it was premeditated. that It was something that he had practiced before. Perhaps he had been actually inspired by uh, the assassination of King Eglon by the Judge Ehud in Judges chapter 3 if you remember that story. These uh, uh, These two stories here are parallel in that there's there's a deception, there's a sword, and there's a one-thrust kill. So perhaps Joab found his inspiration for his own technique from Ehud. What is striking about this murder is just how public it was. Joab just murders Amasa right in front of all the army without hesitation. Joab didn't hide his sin, like David did. We saw David do that. Joab doesn't make any attempt to do so. But he did hide the sinfulness of his sin. He didn't hide his sin. He hid the sinfulness of his sin, the odiousness, the wickedness, the shame of his sin. He hid its sinfulness behind his boldness. Behind his ability to control others and make them think that what he did was right. He murdered Amasa, but Joab made it look like it was okay, just because of how boldly he did it. Those with dominant and violent reputations, such as Joab, those with whom uh, no one can stand up against, they will often sin boldly. They will act as if they are saying that what they're saying and doing is just completely fine and justified. They'll just appear completely at peace with what they're doing and saying, and their confidence and their ability to crush any of anyone who would oppose them makes people avoid questioning them. These people, people, they make gossiping appear okay. They make foul language and coarse joking normal. They make bullying acceptable. They boast in their sexual immorality, their greed, and their gluttony. They do not hide their sin. They hide the sinfulness of their sin. Now, we may all be thinking of people in our minds, but let's think about ourselves for a moment. We do this too. When we're around certain people, we feel a little more free to sin when we wouldn't around other people, but though Joab hid the sinfulness of his sin, his sin found him out. It came to light. We see this in First Kings chapter two. First Kings chapter two is is uh, the chapter when David dies, and but right before David dies, he has some final words with his son Solomon, and he says there in verse five. Solomon. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Wow. (laughs) So even though David hadn't gone through with bringing justice upon Joab, he did know that justice needed to come. And he called for his son to not let Joab's gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So Solomon obeyed his father. He did what David should have done. And he brought justice upon the head of Joab. Solomon says of Joab in verse 32, he says, The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. Be sure your sin will find you out. So Solomon sent Benaiah to put Joab to death. And then Benaiah became the commander of the king's army in Joab's place. It took years to come, but justice came to Joab. Justice always comes. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now let's consider Sheba. His sin finds him out really quickly. David's army, now led by Joab, pursues Sheba all the way to Abel of Beth-Makkah. It's a city in the far north. Thankfully, uh, Sheba's rebellion had lost a lot of followers along the way, And really, he only picked up his relatives, the Bichrites, who then entered into the city of Abel with him. Joab's army besieges this city, and they begin to build a siege mound against the wall so they could batter the weaker parts of the wall or eventually be able to go over the wall itself. A wise woman of the city intervenes and it's through her words that she saves her city. The pen is mightier than the sword. Or in this case, words are mightier than the sword. She agrees to send Sheba's head over the wall, and Joab accepts that because he is only after Sheba, not the city itself. Justice comes quickly for Sheba, and the rebellion is suppressed. The chapter had begun with Sheba's trumpet blast, and now it ends not with Sheba's, but with Joab's trumpet blast. You could say that both men love to toot their own horns, <laughs> and eventually justice comes for both men for their pride. So justice comes quickly sometimes. And sometimes it comes a long. Sometimes it takes many years to come, and sometimes, as we see in the case of David's concubines in verse three, sometimes we are left wondering if justice or injustice has occurred. Look back at verse 3. As soon as David returns to Jerusalem, he took his ten concubines, and he shut them up and put them under guard in a house until they died. He never went back into them. So, now, was this just or unjust? Had the concubines died? done something to deserve a life sentence under house arrest? Now, David had left them in charge of his house when he fled Absalom, and had they neglected to do so? Or had they been willing to just let Absalom have their way with them? We just, we just don't get much evidence here in just one verse of this situation. We don't have much evidence to be able to say whether there's clear guilt or clear innocence for the concubines. But if you think about it, it may also be that David is being unjust by locking up these 10 women. I mean, is he hiding his shame? He should never have had these concubines in the first place, and now is he punishing these these women for his sin? Do they deserve these life sentences? Or is the punishment far worse than the crime? Or was there no crime at all? Did these concubines really have any choice in becoming a concubine or or taking care of his house or or any choice in the matter of Absalom? Uh, Are they just completely victims in this whole situation? We just don't know. Sometimes in life, these situations happen where we see a tragedy, we don't get much evidence, and we're left to wonder whether justice or evil has prevailed. So what do we do? What do we do when we experience these confusions of justice and injustice? Brothers and sisters, let's root ourselves here. Let's root ourselves in knowing that the judge of the earth sees everything. And he will bring justice upon all in justice. He sees all the evidence. And he has the perfect scale of his own holy character to judge by. A day is coming when all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And those who have done evil, whether in secret or publicly, all those who have done evil will receive the just punishment of everlasting torment of hell. They have sinned against an infinitely holy God, so their punishment is justly Everlasting. So there is a day of justice that is coming. But there is another moment in history when justice was served. It was at the cross, wasn't it? God's full wrath was justly poured out on Jesus for the unjust and sinful ways of us, His people. David's his, his, David's unjust ways, his murder, his adultery, his passivity, his parenting failures, and possibly the situation with the ten concubines, it was all placed on Jesus at the cross. He received David's sin. And he receives our sin when we see the sinfulness of our sin and look on him in faith as the only way for our sins to be justly forgiven be sure your sin will find you out but brothers and sisters be just as sure that Jesus Christ will stand in your place when your sin comes to condemn you Our sin will find us out, but Jesus Christ will stand in our way. He will take our place. He is our substitution. He is our atonement. He is our refuge. And none who take their refuge in Him will be condemned. So look to Him if you are hiding in your sin, no matter how dreadful it may be, and bring your sin to the light of the cross. Bring it to the justice of the cross before it brings you to the justice of the dreadful day of judgment. Sometimes we put our hope in this country that one day, one day we're going to have this just society where there's justice and freedom and equality for all. But when we do that, perhaps were no better than the men of Israel and Judah who were putting their hope in their portion in David. And so if you look at verse 1 again of 2 Samuel chapter 20, look there, Sheba's hopeless lie was at its core a false gospel. It's a false gospel. When Sheba proclaimed that Israel had no inheritance in the son of Jesse. He was thinking in small terms of what inheritance and land that they would receive in their lifetime. They were looking to the physical land of Israel as their inheritance. Period. They were thinking so small. They were not looking in faith to the gospel promises made to Abraham that the inheritance of Abraham, the inheritance of David was far, far more than the small land of Canaan. As Hebrews 11 says, and Hebrews 11, as we know, that's the, that's the uh, some often, often like to call it the Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11 says that the faithful of the Old Testament, they were in faith, desiring a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They desired a better country. Something more than the land of Israel. The heavenly one. So our inheritance, our promised portion, it's not America. It's not Israel. It's far, far greater than that. It's, it's heaven with God and his holy people. It's the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem, the city of God. And that inheritance is found in the Son. Of Jesse. Not in David, but in David's greater son, Jesus. Isaiah eleven. Isaiah eleven prophesies in the root of Jesse, that the root of Jesse will come, and it says, Whose resting place shall be glorious? His resting place shall be glorious. It is through Jesus that we become heirs of all things, of a land of unceasing rest. Sheba preached a false gospel, that there is no inheritance in the son of Jesse. But today I proclaim to you the true gospel, that in Christ we do have an inheritance far greater than anything that we fight over with each other today. We are poor exiles. We're mere sojourners. We're at the same time heirs. And believing this gospel and living in this hope gives us this identity as sojourning heirs. That's the identity I want us all to hold on to today. That we are sojourners and heirs, sojourning heirs. And having that identity helps kill the desires in our hearts to fight each other for the things of this world. When we root ourselves in our gospel identity as sojourning heirs, if you think about it, why why would we fight for recognition and respect when we know that we are sinners and, and, and we've received the greatest recognition, that we're called sons and daughters of God? And, and and why would we fight for close proximity to important people when because we're sojourning heirs we are we have perfect access to the most important person imaginable Jesus Christ, God Himself. And why would we fight over temporary stuff and, and, and getting what we deserve when heaven's just it's just right around the corner? And the only thing that we truly deserve is hell, isn't it? So brothers and sisters, look to your portion in David. Think often of your inheritance in the son of Jesse. and Let that content yourself. Let that content your tongue. Let that silence your tongue. Let that content your heart. Let that humble your pride. Let that identity affect You, when someone's trying to start an argument or or when you feel defensiveness creeping up. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to hope in, so much more than what this life can offer. So let's together, let's be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by believing the gospel and filling our hope in the inheritance that we have together in Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we thank You so much that we are co-heirs with Christ of all things. Lord, what would that be like for us to live like we're sojourners, like we are going to the new heavens and the new earth, that we're not rooting ourselves here? What would it be like for us in our relationships, what would it look like in our relationships with other people if we believed we were heirs, if we lived like heirs who didn't need the things of this world, who one day, very soon, will have all things imaginable. Lord, I ask that you would help us to believe the gospel, to be rooted in this identity, and therefore to be eager to maintain our unity in the bond of peace. I ask, Lord, that You would do heart surgery in each one of us here. That we would be able to see the passions that are at war within us. The divisions that begin to, 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 to happen from a result of us desiring things that we should not. Lord, we thank You so much. We praise You, O Christ, that when our sin comes to find us out, to condemn us, when Satan Tempts us and calls us and accuses us with all of our sin. We praise you that you, Lord Christ, are our refuge, that you stand in the gap, that you protect us, that you have taken our sin, that you took the condemnation that we deserved. So we praise you, Lord Christ, Lord Christ, that we can live with that peace in you. So we pray this now, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.